And somehow... Actually, I have two relationships with it. Sometimes it makes me want to cuss more and be more irreverent. And sometimes not. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so the title of the talk tonight is uh, The Judging Mind. And I think it's just so appropriate to talk about the ways in which judgment just kind of find their way. And then the way blame kind of layers on top of judgment. So I'm going to unpack it in a few different ways and then we'll open up for some questions. But really it's, it's a discussion Yet I'm going to give a bunch of information and then we'll, we'll see what happens. So breath and body, thoughts, seeing them as impermanent. It's so important in this practice. Once we establish mindfulness and concentration, we can begin to use it to our advantage. So we first have to begin to see, okay, so breath, this body, thoughts, feelings, emotions arising and passing away, arising and passing away, kind of exploding in our minds. And then the kind of, uh, I think about after like a, you know, like a firework kind of goes off and there's that, the kind of shower of whatever's left over. Sometimes this is the way uh, thoughts and feelings kind of move through our Experience. Seeing the thought process and being able to unpack it, to unpack what's really going on. This is really what the Buddha kept pointing at, kept pointing at, especially with the first foundation of mindfulness. So repetitive thoughts can be seen as tendencies of the mind or conditions of old karma is another way it's talked about. Conditions of old karma, in other words, uh, the way, like what is arising in the mind are these tendencies, these habits of mind. And then the, the, the karma needs to be played out. So the, the thought process has to be played out. But as long as we keep identifying with it and uh, grasping hold of it and kind of in some ways playing with it, uh, it keeps it alive. Keeps it keeps it re- the repetitiveness coming. Or avoiding it also is the other tendency. So seeing the stark reality of our everyday mind kind of appearing is what this practice is about. So this idea of um, aiming the attention at the breath or with the breath, the experience of breathing, and using that as a focus or a, a tool, it's just that. It's just a tool. And by doing that, what happens? What happens? Stay in the moment? Maybe. If you're good at it. Right? If you've been practicing for a while, you stay for a moment or two. But what's the other thing that happens? Yes. You're like, holy shit. My mind is totally out of control. Right? That was my big first insight. Right? Oh, wow. This mind is unruly and does whatever the hell it wants. Okay, I got some work to do, you know? And so that's what the tool is, this mindfulness practice. But then what 
when the judging mind comes in, it tends to judge the fact that we can't control the mind or the thought process. So then the, uh, in my instruction, I say, you know, when you recognize that your attention wanders off, with, you know, uh, uh, to meet it with friendliness, with kindness, instead of what the, uh, the habitual response is the judgment. The, oh, I can't do this. This isn't for me. This meditation stuff doesn't work. Obviously, my mind is out of control. You know? So we're trying to change our relationship to our thoughts. The judging mind is the old story, the voices of, of the ego experiences, and the subtle voice of not good enough. The subtle voice that is not good enough, and re, like the repetitive, who knows where it came from, right? Childhood, elementary school, or high school, or your last relationship, or you know, whatever. But it's this old voice. It's the I, self, and me. It's the the it's the selfing, as is talked about uh, from the Buddhist perspective. This idea of selfing, this grasping hold of concepts. And turning them into some identification or identifying with them. So this voice of good or bad, yes, no, I'm right, you're wrong. This is the judging mind. There was a, a teacher, um, Ajahn Jimian, and he was from, he's from the southern uh, end of tip of Thailand. And uh, he would say, he didn't, didn't speak very good English, right? But he would come, he'd come a, a once a year, once every couple of years. He hasn't been here in a while. I think he's you know, getting up there in years. But um, he would laugh walking up to the podium and say, Me, 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 free, free, free. <laughs> me, 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 free, free, free. And that was the basis of his, like that's the way he would give a teaching. You know? And what he was basically saying, as he would then talk for an hour about it, is... The more that I'm meing, the less free I am. And the more that I'm finding freedom, the less me there is. So it's this idea of when we're self-obsessed, you know, self-centered, self-seeking, seeking self constantly, then there's a, a grasping there. There's the lack of freedom. This... Practice is liberating. It's liberating in the way that the practice itself helps us see that process of meing and then not being free. And so causing the suffering. In essence, we cause our own suffering by grasping, aversion, attachment. I say this every time. I think you can never say it enough. One of my one of my favorite teachers, Jack Cornfield, uh, it would say, uh, you know, you tell him, and then you tell him again, and then you tell him again, and this is actually exactly what the Buddha did. Is that the Buddha gave one teaching, his first teaching, right? the turning of the wheel of Dharma, and it was the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and then every other teaching is just an unpacking or a slight uh, twist on that same ba basic teaching. And it's beautiful in that way. 
that it all kind of circles around. So back to the judging mind. Our comparing mind, it's usually attached to our defense of lovability. This has been my experience. This has been my investigation. That this kind of uh, comparing, what the Buddha talked about as mana, the word meaning mana, comparing, it's usually attached to our lovability, competence, or intelligence. Where in some way we're trying to defend our lovability to ourselves or to others. Our competence are, you know, in some ways I think about that, this kind of earth touching gesture of the Buddha in confidence saying, I belong here. <coughs> you know, this practice is helpful. I belong here. Because doubt kicks in. Comparing and doubt very closely related. And then intelligence, right? So if we are defensive and caught in judgment, we continue this cycle of creating suffering for ourselves. So it's important to be able to see this process and this practice of coming back to the present moment, present time awareness, breath in, breath out, body sitting, even the, you know, the unpleasant, the pain, the aching, the whatever, it's all... Uh, uh, helping us to see this process. So when we judge the knee pain, does the knee pain get worse? Actually, oftentimes. If we're judging ourselves for thinking what, you know, the, the suttas might call impure thoughts, which is just thoughts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that often are inappropriate or unskillful. But when you can begin to go to see it, then we have some, we can do something about it. There's actually, that's the doorway to freedom. So judgment is something, so I'm going to do a little breaking down judgment versus discernment. Because in the Buddha's teachings, discernment is talked a lot. There's a lot of talk about discernment. And a lot of times people uh, get this, these two confused. So judgment is something that we imply value on. Or is associated with a label of good or bad or positive or negative. So judgment is, there's an experience. And then the judgment is placing a positive or negative or good or bad um, label. Versus discernment. So discernment, so it's like seeing a thing or a situation without a value. So we're not placing a value. We're just seeing it as it is. So thoughts. One of the ways I like to do this uh, as discernment versus judgment is no good or bad and just thoughts. So when the mind wanders off, because it does, the mind wanders off, does it? All the time. I mean, you know, sometimes less, sometimes more. But when we recognize that, instead of, you know, bad, I just say, oh, thinking. There's a, a, a moment of that, that kindness, that compassion of, of, oh yeah, the mind thinks. Matter of fact, that's its job. That's all it's supposed to do, is think. Take in, well it's not all, but it's a lot of what it's supposed to do. Is take in information. And then try to make some kind of sense of it. This is what the brain does. 
a lot of information, yeah. And some of that information, it's not even about here and now. That's the that's a whole other talk. But that's my whole what's happening, what's happening about what's happening, what's not actually happening, right? And then there's what's happening about what's not actually happening. And this is so much of the story. There's so much of the story that comes up in our minds, and we often have a judgment about it. Where if we're just discerning what is happening here and now, six senses. It's just arising and passing away, and there's a lot less judgment on it. And uh, uh, there's more of an ability to kind of soften and not be so identified. So I don't know where we get these judgments from. Our environment, you know, like I said earlier, our parents, judgments of our bodies, our lives, you know, right or wrong. Could come from, I don't know, school, media advertisements. It gets in really young. I think that one of the reasons why I was so, uh, I don't know, violent or aggressive was Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. <laughs> and I was actually watching Tom and Jerry the other day constantly battling, right? I loved those cartoons. I still do. They're kind of fun. But I can see them from an a adult mind. And with a little bit of distance now, so I'm not like it's, I'm not plugged into it. I'm not saying that's the reason, but I'm saying who knows, right? The stories, where they come from, the habits, where they come from. We tell ourselves, if I only had the new iPad or a better vehicle or more money, you know, a different partner, a better job, more weight, less weight. In my case, more hair, less hair. Right? Then I'll be happy. This is what our society tells us. This is craving. This is suffering. From the Buddhist perspective, this is the crux of the second noble truth. Craving is the cause of suffering. So we also begin to compare our insides to others' outsides. You guys heard that before, right? So if I had this or that, then I would feel this way or that way. So it's this, uh, that's part of the comparing that's pretty deep. So much conditioning is created through our lives. And this is the piece where it's like, we're not to blame. There's no blame here. It's super important. It's, it's, as the Buddha points to, this is the conditioned world. It's the way things are. Seeing it clearly, then we have some uh, possibility for liberation. But first, we have to, in the first noble truth, see that there is suffering in this world. Stop denying it. Stop avoiding it. Turn toward it, actually. Really hard to do. Really hard to do. Matter of fact, we're so conditioned, right, to turn away from the, our internal suffering, external suffering, difficulties, challenges. We're just, it's not our fault. So the Buddha described this kind of craving as uh, the realm of the hungry ghosts. I've always liked this, the uh, iconography of the hungry ghost. So, in the 
Buddhist cosmology, there's these different planes of existence. And one is the human realm and the animal realm. And there's this kind of uh, angry, God, well, it's not angry, it's like unsatisfied God realm, this lower God realm and this heavenly realm. And, and there's, there's uh, the hungry ghost realm and the animal realm. So there's these different realms of existence, right? And the hungry ghost realm, considered a hell realm, and the way that it's um, depicted, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, is these uh, these ghost-like creatures, kind of like Casper, you know, but with this big, big bellies and these tiny little throats that are irritated in red with uh, these tiny pinhole mouths sitting all around a huge feast. And that this is the realm of the hungry ghost. The kind of insatiable appetite of craving. So instead of thinking about this as the that the, it's like a, a, a hell realm, I think about it all of the realms more as um, psychological makeups or mind states. You know, I mean, how many people have been in the hungry ghost realm? Yeah. <laughs> Or even in the the animal realm, which is completely like libidinal, like for, like the the base desire, instinct, fight flight, flee, fight flight freeze. That's more the kind of the 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 animal realm, or the heavenly realm. This kind of delusional, kind of spacey, no body, just kind of oh, everything's groovy, you know, like that kind of, or even just wanting to be there. So these, I, I see these more from a psychological uh, stance as um, mind states, states of mind, even incarnations within this life. You could think about it that way too. So another way that this is described, this hungry ghost realm, is the cycle of addiction by therapists, counselors, psychologists. Point to this kind of cycle of addiction, of uh, like a mental obsession coupled with this physical compulsion, this grasping, this wanting, and then never having enough, the phenomena of craving, which then ultimately leads to uh, negative consequences and or more craving, more wanting, never enough. So it's important to see this. So Ajahn Amaro, one of my teachers, uh, backed this up by talking about the constant dissatisfaction of our wanting, right? Being the cycle of addiction. So this kind of hell realm or cycle of addiction and that craving, the dissatisfaction... In this country, we tend to point that toward what's called kind of low self-esteem or low self-worth. Uh, that's another way it's talked about. Self-hatred. You know, uh, the Dalai Lama once uh, hosted a lot of uh, a bunch of different Western teachers, and uh, they were asking questions. And one of the one of the things that the Western teachers asked the Dalai Lama is, uh, how do you work with so many students that have so much self-hatred? 
And he was like, hmm? and he was like, you know, he would like listen over to his translator, and he would, and then he would, they would like talk in Tibetan, and then he just was like, like, and then uh, the the translator, he, like, he didn't understand, and then the translator finally said, we don't have a word for self hatred in our language, so there isn't, so there's, it's something that's primarily kind of Western. This idea of so the one, the idea of having a self to hate. Right, so that's part of it, right? This kind of identification with who we are, and then hating that. So they were like, I don't like. They didn't really get it, but it, but they related it back to this, this the judging manna, this comparing. Because if we're comparing, then there's there's there, there's it's either better than, less than, or equal to. And very often it's not so equal to. It's usually less than or better than, and if we're on the if we're on the one up position, then that means we we have to be oppressing in some way, putting somebody else down, and then vice versa. Right? So just inviting you to kind of uh, think about this for yourself. So some comparing is merely an observation, right? He's taller than me. She's a different gender than me. Uh, without judgment. Nothing wrong with that. The Buddha recognized that our minds have been conditioned to compare. However, the Buddha pointed out that every time that we compare ourselves to others, we're creating this sense of self that's fixed. Because in order to have something to compare to, we have to have an identification. Right? So just get rid of the identity, the identity and the identification with self, and then you're good. <laughs> good luck. Because it's so entwined, right? And so there's, and then we're kind of getting into this whole thing. Actually, I'll get there in a minute. This whole thing about anicca and anatta and impermanence and no fixed impermanent self and... We'll get, I'll get there in just a second. Because it's, it's a big point. So this, you know, sense of self, right? We're locking ourselves into beliefs about who we are. Personality, ego, story. It's really what we're talking about. Personality, this kind of ego attachment to our stories. And that's so much of what we call self. Is an identification with our egoic stories of better than, comparing better than, less than, equal to. So quit it. Cut it out. See things as they really are. Ever-changing. So... This, ide- this identity, this kind of ego, this personality, this story, this goes against Anicca. Anicca is one of the kind of core teachings of the Buddha that points to the impermanent nature of all things. And so, and then the sister of that is Anatta. And Anatta really means no fixed and permanent self. Or really, no fixed and permanent anything. That everything—it's so they're 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 dual, a Nietzsche and a Nata. Anything that 
is material, arises and passes away. It comes and goes, including us. Yet, the egoic self wants us to continue to believe that, no, we're, we're going to last. We're going to stay this way. And then it just gets super complicated. So we're not saying that, that, that you're not there and you don't exist, actually. But what, what we are saying is that there's nothing else that exists more or less. That everything exists the same for a period of time. Even this planet. I was actually, I've been watching um, Cosmos on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Super cool. It's so fun, right? And at first I was like, ah, oh, whatever, another boring. But it's like talking about, you know, the, just the millions of years, billions of years of development. And then even like, you know, how many galaxies are out there? It's just mind-blowing. One of my teachers, Mary Grace Orr, who's the founding teacher of this center, once started, she's very into um, astronomy and space. They live on the big island in Hawaii, right by that big, there's a big telescope there. And they do some volunteering there or whatever. But she started her Dharma talk off this one time by saying, I'm just a speck in this universe. Just a speck. And it was so, it was like, yeah. Why do we, how do we get off on so being so important, so almighty? You know, what is the deal? We're just a speck. This planet is so small in comparison. So this judging mind it's part of that. It's like this identification with like not wanting to be the speck, wanting to be something other. We're actually a bunch of little specks, right? But in the in that large, she's starting with that the kind of the largest uh, <clears throat> spectrum. Sometimes I think it's really important, and I love that about Buddhism. Actually, just the. It's like, okay, so let's deal with the, this mind, this moment, this present moment. But then sometimes just, boom, let's macro, blow it out so far that you just can't take yourself seriously. I love that. Because to do that, we have to free ourselves up a little bit. So we're not so small self. But there's this bigger self. That's not actually a self. It's just a part. A part of. Uh, I remember I had a teacher once that, uh, his name was George McClelland. He was a Benedictine monk. He was teaching interpersonal relationships, interpersonal dynamics, something like that. I forgot his quote. <laughs> it will probably come back. Oh, one of many and one of few. That's what he would say. I'm one of many and I'm one of few. And that's the way I think that relates to this kind of uh, this identification with self. But yet, let's not be so identified. There, there, there is a you. There is some personality that we have here based on causes and conditions, based on, uh, you know, well, 
It's based on a lot, but it's basically based on the five aggregates, which we're not going to get into because I'm talking about judgment. <laughs> I digress. I'm almost done. So, so working with judgment. You know, the Buddha gave us these two phrases, these two teachings. One is called Hari, and the other is called Opata. So remembering our memories or our actions in meditation as like the 10 or 20 worst things I ever did often comes up. Uh, Jack Hornfield calls it the 10 top tunes of our psyche. You know, And that's the repetitive kind of thought patterns right, that come up. We need to recognize or know how to how our unskillful actions are the first step in healing our minds. So we need to see our unskillful actions. And Hari and Opata help us to do that. So the Buddha <coughs> thought of these as being really important. And he called them the, the bright guardians of the world. The bright guardians of the world, this Hari and Opata. So Opata, well actually Hari, Hari is the inner reflection. Kind of this, uh, some people call it guilt. Guilt in that we feel stuck in the past. When we're kind of locked in guilt, we're feeling stuck in the past. But guilt, like kind of it, the karmically or like in the moment, it's appropriate. It's necessary. It's part of, it's a bright guardian. Because it's saying, oh wait, I'm out of a line here. Something is not, there's some out, something out of alignment from what, you know, whatever we want to call true nature or... Uh, skillful means, or, you know, there's lots of different ways to talk about it. But that's where guilt can be really helpful. But carrying it is not helpful. And this is uh, back when I was talking about the old karma kind of playing itself out. That's a little bit of what that is. So opata is, uh, is considered kind of outer. So here is inner, it's inner reflection. I feel guilty because. You didn't make me feel guilty. I feel guilty because this, that, or the other thing. It's an important distinction too because I think uh, a lot of times people say, you make me feel guilty. No. Actually, don't make you feel anything. You feel the way you feel. And it might be, have something to do with my actions. But my actions didn't make I didn't make you feel that way. That's, it's a response. It's a reaction. So opata outer, right? So this remorse in the context of community, right? How our actions affect others. So this also can look a little bit like shame. Because shame is like shame on you. Like an outside in. And sometimes that can get uh, manifested as, as, an, as an inner guilt that we carry with us. Can anyone relate to that? No? This kind of shame from the outside in. We all deal with that. So one of the things I like to think about is, so we're responsible, but not to blame. Response-able, able to respond in the moment, actions, reactions. And in order to let go, we have to be able to see that clearly. 
non-judgmentally. Because if we're judging, then if we're judging our, oh, why am I having these thoughts? Or, or even, why did I do that action? We need to feel the, the out of balance about it. And then take right action. Another thing just popped up in my mind. Uh, this, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a quote. Well, it's not a, it's not a quote from the Buddha, but it's, I think it's part of actually the, I can't remember where it's from, but I really like it. And it goes, uh, if there's something that can be done about a situation, why be upset? If there's something that can be done about a situation, why be upset? And if there's nothing that can be done about a situation, why be upset? So this is pointing to, you know, if there's uh, some kind of guilt or remorse, take right action. Do what can be done. And if there's nothing that can be done, that can be done then we need to just let it go. We need to let it go. That the grasping or the trying to figure it out or what if and how did it happen doesn't work so well. Precepts are helpful. This the over. I'm not going to break down all the precepts because I'm running out of time and I'm getting. I don't want to get too scattered in my talk. But this idea of ahimsa, which is do no harm. That that is, um, in some ways, it, there's a there's actually a Zen story about an archer that is trying to hit the target, and that ahimsa, do no harm, is the bullseye, and that we do our best, time after time after time, and uh, hopefully we get better, right? We must start off, we veer off, or you know, way we're not even hitting the board, right? But we need to keep at it, practice. Just like keep practicing uh, with this present time awareness. So that we can begin to see things more clearly. So how do we kind of use this? So recognizing it, like I said. And then really I think (coughs) naming judgment. So I did this practice... uh, Maybe five or maybe eight years ago I started it, but it took a while to really get it going. But as my mindfulness practice was increasing, as I was my ability to uh, kind of stay present, and then you know the mind would wander off, I began to be more aware. Right, and one of the things I became aware of is how much I judge, and how much it started actually out outwardly. Right, I just would judge everything and everybody and. Was just out of control, right? And I kind of started to be aware of it. And then I was like, oh, wow, so much judgment. And then I was judging the judgment, right? Oh, I'm so bad. I'm not like a meditator. I'm like, I'm a counselor. I'm a this, I'm a that. All this selfing about it, right? And then I, I started to take on this practice. I'm going to talk to, actually, I think I read it in uh, one of Stephen Levine's books, uh, A Gradual Awakening, talks about judging, the judging mind. But then using the judging as a practice. So every time that judgment came up in my mind, towards myself or towards others, and I was aware of it, I would just see it, judging. And just say it, just like thoughts, right? Judging. And then let it go. And then, you know, five minutes later it would come up again. Judging. And so this is a really helpful practice. And then the other piece is to then have compassion for the judging. To turn from just 
awareness to compassion. Oh, this mind. So full of judgment. I just got in contact with um, the kid that felt like he had to protect himself by judging everyone and keeping everyone away. So having compassion for that. Having some loving kindness for the child that didn't feel safe. So important, you know. It's part of the practice. And then also the, the seeing, okay, is that skillful if I hold on to this judgment or this uh, criticism? Is it skillful or is it unskillful? Generally leads to unskillfulness in my experience. But, you know, see for yourself. If we feed judgment, what happens? What? It grows. It grows, yeah. Like a big monster. Like the blob. Remember the blob? That was a good movie. Poor guy. Can't get his car started. (laughs) So I think I'm done today. I hope that things I've had to say were helpful. I'll just I'll open up now uh, for a few questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.